0: As the Arctic becomes more accessible, the need to cooperate and collaborate with other Arctic nations and nations interested in Arctic resources is clear. What should the future of policy, commerce, safety, fisheries and resource development look like in coming years and who should be at the table to decide? A large gathering of Arctic nation, indigenous leaders, dignitaries and politicians took place in Anchorage earlier this month We'll discuss the deliberations and ideas coming from the Arctic Encounter Symposium today on Talk of Alaska.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its 1 million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust.
1: The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters.
2: Hello, it's Talk of
0: Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. There are eight Arctic nations. And currently, the Russian war in Ukraine has caused concern about how the nations will continue vital work on joint management of the region. Russia currently holds the chair for the Arctic Council. But the other seven nations that comprise the council have condemned Russia's war and have suspended participation in Arctic Council meetings. So what does this mean? How critical is continuity in Arctic research and other co-management issues as global interest in Arctic resources ramps up? On the line to help us understand what's at stake and how Arctic Nation officials endeavor to keep working despite the current stalemate is Mike Schfraga, the chair of the U.S. Arctic Commission and the founding director and chair of the Polar Institute. In the studio with me today, Rachel Kalander is the executive director of Arctic Encounter. And also joining us by phone is the ambassador of Iceland to the United States, Ambassador Ellert Ellertstadter. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. You Alaskans can also join our conversation. Did you attend Arctic Encounters? Do you have questions or ideas about how Arctic policy should be developed for the future? Do you have concerns about increasing vessel traffic and safety in the Arctic? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422-550-8255. Four two two. You can also email us talk at alaskapublic So, Rachel, start us off here. You grew up in a commercial fishing family. Is that really what triggered your interest in the future of the Arctic and led to founding of Arctic Encounter?
3: Um, great question. Um, it is in part. Um, if I'm perfectly candid, I was three years old when the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. Um, in our backyard in Prince William Sound. I grew up in Cordova, for those of you not familiar with Alaska or Prince William Sound. Um, yeah, so my, my parents sort of moved to Alaska and built their dream, which was building a fishing family working business. And um, the oil spill really was a major um, narration of my life and the young people um, that I grew up with in that area. And I think that I became fascinated through that experience uh, with community resilience, which my community is many hundreds of miles south of the Arctic Circle. So not comparing that to the same thing, but a, a broad brush stroke of, of community resilience, knowing what that means to me personally, trying to understand what that means to other people, and then also how do you navigate a world in which we do rely, including our own fishing boats, right? The ones that we grew up operating, we do rely on on uh, oil and gas and, and minerals to to operate and to live. Um, but but we also had a very unique experience there uh, with the oil spill, and I uh, it was in law school, when I was in law school, that I became sort of fascinated with that um, intersection, if you will, and, and how do we navigate that through policy and decision-making. Mm-hmm.
0: So talk a little bit about uh, the recent gathering, the Arctic Encounter gathering in Anchorage. What were your big takeaways? I think I was told there was more than 600 people in attendance from numerous countries. What did you hear as uh, some of the biggest concerns that are, are coming forward about the Arctic?
3: Yeah, so we had uh, 673 participants, which I think only a director would know by heart, (laughs) but we're proud of that number uh, as our first flagship event in Anchorage. We also had uh, uh, roughly 15 countries represented. the big takeaways, of course, are that nexus between um, renewables, uh, resource development, conservation in the environment and climate. But we also had a major emphasis on on COVID response and and community health and resilience and infrastructure and how all of those are working together right now as we're still on this cusp of COVID. oh, Is it over? Is it not over? What does that mean for super rural communities in the far north? We had uh, people representing all of the Arctic nations there except Russia in an official and diplomatic and uh, sort of community-driven and military sense. And so there were many diverse perspectives uh, speaking directly to their home and and the home front and what they just went through. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks for getting us started, Rachel. Mike, I want to turn to you now.
0: We know that seven members of the Arctic Council have suspended participation in meetings as they've condemned Russia. Has the Russian war in Ukraine affected the work of the Arctic Research Commission? Um, Are you seeing signs that things may slow down this year?
4: Well, Thanks, Lori. Yeah, certainly the the, the war uh, in Ukraine has certainly impacted research throughout the globe, but in particular in the Arctic as well. Uh, We have have colleagues in Russia that we've worked with for a long period of time. Uh, Many have been to Alaska. Uh, We have interests in, in the Russian landscape, permafrost, storm surge, coastal erosion, fires. Uh, We need significant Arctic observing networks in place, long-term observations to inform modeling. And so when we do not have access to that kind of information or our colleagues in Russia, it certainly slows down. And as we have seen recently, it stops work that is focused particularly in the Arctic Council. In terms of the commission, the commission sets goals and priorities for the United States and then other agencies key off of the priorities that we set. So, so for, for U.S. priorities in the Arctic, it's all integrated, and it certainly has taken a toll in terms of our access to and also working with Russia. But we, we are also continuing to do the work of the North aside from Russia. So work with Canada, Norway, Sweden, Finland, the Kingdom of Denmark, Iceland. That, that continues on. That level of cooperation continues on. Uh, and, that, and it has to, it's unfortunate that this war has uh, kept hostage the good work of the Arctic Council. And it's unfortunate that a country that has half the coastline of, of the Arctic Ocean is now not participating in not just research, but many many important issues. So yes, there's been impact now. I'm concerned about the long-term impact of not having access to Russia and also not having access to data sets that we need desperately to further understand what's happening in a part of the world that is changing rapidly, and even at the best of times, we struggle to keep up with observing what is happening and and trying to figure out what the implications are for that change, all the way from the geopolitical aspects to the real concrete impacts of our rural and Native communities throughout the North.
0: What does it mean in terms of Uh, If it's six months of a pause versus two years of a pause Mm -hmm. in research, how does that uh, affect both the cost of what you then have to do to get caught back up, but also the legitimacy of the prior research that was suddenly shunted off?
4: That's a great question. The legitimacy, you know, stands. The scientific community monitors itself. What it does is it puts a gaping hole in our understanding of what's happening. Think about the weather maps that we follow in Alaska for our own aviation needs, or just our own day-to-day lives. A lot of that weather is generated uh, to our, uh, to to you know, across the border in Russia. So major major weather monitoring. Uh, is needed if we don't have access to that weather monitoring information on a very local level that impacts us uh, all the way to the to the grand level. If it's just 6 months and by the way I don't think we're talking about just 6 months. This this war looks like it will continue on for a while and even if it stopped tomorrow, uh, there's a lot that needs to be vetted and and figured out in the international arena. I think we're looking at a long-term prospect here of us doing work uh, as best we can as Arctic 7 nations and those non- Arctic nations that have interests and assets and values in the North as well. I think it will certainly hinder uh, the scientific work, the research that is going on. There's absolutely no doubt. So the international community is going to have to redouble its efforts to try to do the work that was happening before. Again, not just in the Arctic Council, but also external to the Arctic Council as well. There's no doubt there will be impacts and there will be negative impacts going forward.
0: Thank you for that. Ambassador Ellertsdottir, thank you for your patience here. Tell us about Iceland's participation at the Arctic Encounter Gathering in Anchorage and what you want to see going forward for multinational cooperation, despite the lack of cooperation with Russia currently. Well,
5: thank you very much. And, and it's not being patient because it's always very um, Interesting to listen to both Mike and, and Rachel and, um, and their insights, and I I was very struck uh, at when I came to Anchorage uh, her her story uh, about her life in the in the fishing village and the oil spill. I mean, just how such such an you know an accident can have devastating effects on on the livelihood of of a community. Uh, and this is something that we all, always bear in mind when we're looking at the Arctic and, and how vulnerable the nature is and how vulnerable these small communities are um, spread across the Arctic. Um, I, was, I, I must say that coming to the Arctic Encounter was my first visit to Alaska. And it—it it was a, uh, this is an experience I will carry with me for a long time. Uh, not just meeting all these interesting people, many, many Alaskans, uh, some of whom I'm very happy to call friends now. Um, But I also felt that the Anchorage was was the right setting for this and what I really uh, um, appreciated and what was mostly most interesting for me because I meet other representatives from, from the Arctic States all the time, but to meet the indigenous people and the indigenous communities, because their voices were quite strong, as well as the voices of young people, and and I think this was, there was more uh, women representation at this uh, conference than in many other conferences I've, I've uh, been to on this on the Arctic issue. And Rachel, maybe you can um, say something about that. So. So this was really a learning uh, process for me, and I and I just can't wait to come back to Alaska, because I mean, we can see that Alaska and Iceland, we have so many things in common, so many things we can cooperate on. On the multilateral um, cooperation on the Arctic, and as you said earlier, and, and, and Mike was referring to as well, that the Arctic Council is not, uh, working at the moment and as and probably not at the moment, it will probably be a long time until the Arctic Council in its usual setting will come together again. We, the as we call us now the Democratic Seven in the in the Arctic Council, we are, I would say, seeking ways to cooperate on all these important issues that we can't just put on the back burner because of this horrific war. Because the climate crisis is still there, um, all these issues that communities are dealing with, and, and some of the things I was very much struck with uh, at the Arctic Encounter was, for example, how how the uh, change in climate is having an effect on on food security in some communities. So, so the issues are still there. We need to deal with them, um, but how we will go about uh, doing that, we are we are all seeking solutions. Um, it was rightly pointed out at the encounter uh, conference that we must also make sure that the Arctic issues are not taken up uh, elsewhere, where maybe the Arctic uh, seven, we, where we are not sort of steering uh, the the conversation, steering the developments. But as Mike also said, we we need to cooperate as well with, with other interested countries that have uh, valuable, um, Contributions to make, like the European Union, we had representation from Japan at the Arctic Encounter Conference. So, so I, I, if I may just be very blunt, I think we're desperately seeking uh, which how we're going to channel this cooperation in the future because uh, I think we will uh it will not be anytime soon that we will be sitting down with, uh, with the Russians uh, and at least not uh, with the present government or the present president in, in Russia, uh, because that, with all the horrific um, crimes in Ukraine, I mean, there needs to be an accountability there. So, I, you know, I, I don't want to predict when this will happen. So in the meantime, we need to find a solution for the Arctic.
0: Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking about the future of the Arctic and Arctic politics with Rachel Kalander, the executive director of Arctic Encounter. Michael Sfraga is the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission and also the founding director of the Polar Institute. And also on the line with us today is the ambassador of Iceland to the United States, Bergdís Elertsdóttir. Ellert, You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255 if you have questions or comments. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. At the Arctic Encounters Gathering in early April, there was a panel of U.S., Japanese, Greenlandic, and Danish officials, and the discussion was about the Shared Future of Diplomacy and Cooperation in the Arctic. Dr. Dale Sambo-Darrow is the international chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, or the ICC. Dr. Darrow said ICC emerged within the context of the Cold War, so the current difficulties are not new. And she said despite other challenges, the ICC has managed to bring indigenous people together to promote dialogue, their status, and their rights. Let's hear from her.
6: I'm very proud to say that we, as Arctic indigenous peoples, have maintained consistency with our messaging, and we recognize the changes that are taking place around us. And I think bottom line is that because we're the original inhabitants of this cryosphere, of this unique region of the world, we have to have a seat at every single table concerning Arctic relations, because it means our security. It means our food security, our environmental security, our cultural security, our overall security for Inuit Nunat and every single one of our communities.
0: Dr. Duro couldn't be here today. We were hoping that she could join us, but I'm glad that we could at least get some of her comments from the recent gathering. Rachel, reflect on her statement about the need for, as she said, the original inhabitants to be at every single table related to Arctic issues.
3: Yeah, um, this is an important conversation piece um, that has come up before at the Arctic Encounter, there is a leader in Nome, Alaska, named Melanie Banky. She famously said, and I say famously um, for the you know several hundred people who were in the room, but it's always been one of those lines that came out of a past Arctic encounter that people remembered. She uh, said at a past Arctic encounter before COVID um, that we don't just need a seat at the table. It is our table that's a strong statement. Not everyone may agree, uh, but I think it's one that all of us, especially those of us who are not original uh, Arctic residents and didn't grow up there, um, I'm sensitive to that Based due to the story I shared at the top of the hour. Um, it's something we all need to meditate on. And so uh, I think that that is mission critical in any kind of convening work especially in the Arctic, and, and maybe um, we have something to learn right now um, w- from the ICC and, and those groups that did a lot of convening and important communications in during and after the Cold War. Um, I know that the if you talk to indigenous leaders on the Bering Strait, they have a completely different outlook at how they communicate with Kamchatka, Siberia, uh, Yakutia, those regions over there, um, because they have families that have have split the Bering Strait, uh, they've split the divide, um, but they know who they are, and, and they have uh, shared cultures and, and shared relatives, quite frankly. So um, it's not as simple as uh, the Russia, you know, Russia is excluded for now. We'll see when they come back in. It's not that simple for the indigenous people in that region. Mike, um, <clears throat> your thoughts about
0: Dr. Dero's comments? How much say do and should indigenous people of the Arctic have in shaping future policy?
4: Yeah, I think Daly um, certainly highlighted one of the most important messages that came out of uh, Rachel's uh, conference, but but this has been a narration that has been right and it's been going on for quite some time. And I believe that uh, at least my dealings with, with the current administration, they're far more uh, leaning forward on this particular issue, far more inputs from communities throughout uh, Alaska into uh, various planning. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Issue spot on. Of course it's complex and, and it's, it's organizations like the ICC that transcend In many ways, the geopolitics, the reality of the geopolitics, they don't dismiss the Russians' continued invasion on Ukraine. But I think what she highlights are three important things. One is that these are one people, these indigenous peoples that have occupied, as she has put it, this cryosphere. That's that's an important. That's that's a lot of messages there, just in that one sentence. Two is that this network of relatives. people who share such a rich, deep culture for thousands of years, that's something to actually build upon in troubled times, as she noted the Cold War. Uh, you know, we we, we weren't in a ground war in Europe during the Cold War as we are now, but nevertheless, these are enduring relationships that could provide, should provide a foundation for sometime in the future at a nation state uh, level. Um, kind of normalizing relations to whenever that happens, but that is a powerful issue. The fact that these peoples occupied this this landscape and they are as fundamentally concerned about food security, water security, sanitation, cultural, social, economic issues, they share that. A war in Ukraine impacts us all, but they're dealing with things right on the ground, right in front of them that they share and their knowledge of the landscape uh, you know, binds them, but that knowledge of the landscape also allows that information to be shared with the broader research community. So there isn't that clear divide between Western knowledge and traditional knowledge. There is knowledge and it needs to feed off each other and cycle. And there's a strong place for that type of knowledge within all systems, whether it be research issues or or policy issues. Um, There's also the reality that Nations speak as nations, and they try to reflect all of their peoples. And I think Daly's right in terms of being at being at the table, um, and and the, there are different tables, but it is a table that has many chairs there, uh, and that is an important chair at the table. And as Melanie has noted, and Rachel commented on, the fact that it is their table is, I think, uh, it resonates, and people are more cognizant of the reality of the North. Is that? before we were here, they were there, they were here. And so uh, taking into account, noticing it and taking into account everything from traditional learning systems to the way in which they view, these communities view the world, what they would like for their future and how that fits into state policy, domestic policy, and in fact, international policy is important and it has to be considered.
0: Ambassador Ellertsdottir, your thoughts uh, about these relationships that indigenous people in the Arctic have had for centuries uh, and for thousands of years. And, and and does that possibly provide a path forward for how to keep things kind of knitted together together? Um, up against, as you noted, it may need to be complete change, regime change in Russia before there's any kind of resolution to um, getting that country back on board with the other seven nations. What are your thoughts about this critical role that Indigenous people in the Arctic play?
5: Well, one of the things... um as I said, which I was most, most struck about the Arctic Encounter uh, conference was this voice of the indigenous people. And as I said, and, and we underlined that during our chairmanship of the Arctic Council, that this is it's, it's important. We need to focus uh, and make our focus must be that the people who are most affected by all the decisions and policies on the future of the Arctic should be actively involved and in shaping and setting the agenda. And as Mike said, I mean, the knowledge and the understanding that goes back thousands of years. I mean, we need to we need to take that into account. We need to respect that. Iceland does not have indigenous people. Uh, but we have still we think that we have supported and, and as I said, we have. Put that on the agenda of our chairmanship of the council that that they, they also need to be involved and and I think that we were talking about very vulnerable small communities uh, and um, who have been cooperating you know across borders that did not exist of course uh, until fairly recently in, in in history and I I think we need to look at the way. These communities can still cooperate, can still meet, uh, despite uh, kind of the, the big power uh, conflicts that we are facing now. Um, and I also think that because it, one of the things that I'm 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 think, I think a lot about because I had a very good talk with with young people that young people who are connected throughout the Arctic. And that is the role of culture, and with the with uh, the uh, climate crisis, a lot of th- you know old culture, thousands of years of culture is, is 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 disappearing, and I think we we really need to to make sure that these communities have the opportunity to to be uh, to find. Um, the means to live in their communities, to, to have economic sustainability, and, and that we need to make sure that their cultures, their languages, that they stay, stay with us, and that and not just a, a short time in history um, uh, makes such a negative impact on the lives and livelihoods uh, of the people in these communities.
0: All right, thank you. Rachel, do you see the large number of attendees from many uh, global nations at Arctic Encounter as a growing recognition of the importance of good shared policy for the Arctic's future, or is it more of an indication of growing eagerness to access resources there?
3: I would say the former. I I think that the latter, there are business interests and investment interests, certainly in the far north. um, But I think that those can be achieved and pursued um, separate from uh, just attending uh, these convenings around the world. Um, We have close relationships with the other um, major conveners in terms of Arctic policy and business um, and, and convening those those minds together around the world. Um, and we're proud to work with those leaders, um, In most notably uh, the two conveners in Norway and Iceland who also host large Arctic conferences. But um, I can't speak for them, but I feel like uh, the energy in the room at Arctic Encounter is unique in that you really do see a, a full... Um, a full rainbow, if you will, of, of all types of stakeholders. And of course, we do have energy and development in that, um, but uh, something that uh, Senator Murkowski said at the dinner event this year that I thought was um, particularly striking, she pointed out that there's no partisan aisle to separate people at Arctic Encounter, um, that people are engaging across every aisle. Republicans and Democrats, developers and environmentalists, urban and rural, Native and not Native, um, that was a, 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 like a, a sigh of relief for me to hear because it's quite literally our goal as a nonprofit to accomplish um, that level of diversity and collaboration um, that, uh, of course, people are coming to the table with their interests in mind. Um, but to be able to in a sense lay those down on the table for a moment for two days and and listen and hear and and potentially build new partnerships that they would not have come into otherwise.
0: So you're essentially sort of trying to build policy without politics. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds sounds like a a, a really Interesting way of moving forward and and, uh, a way that's necessary because, as you say, if people can put that down long enough to really talk about where are the commonalities and the shared interests rather than the divisions –
3: Exactly. And I think that um, the conveners, certainly not just Arctic Encounter, but also others in this Arctic space in the coming months or years, however long this conflict with Russia continues, especially at the governmental level, um, I think that's where I see um, uh, this being important. To continue, and and I know that my team, we, we took that mission seriously, right? The Arctic Encounter or the Arctic Council was basically put on pause, and in no way am I comparing a, a, a symposium to the the work of the Arctic Council, but. Um, We take it seriously that if we can be of some help, right, in that trying to build policy and consensus without politics in this interim period until everything can come back together um, between the eight nations, then, then, um, you know, we would be really proud of that to have a small impact there. We are going to take a
0: quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the future of the Arctic and Arctic politics with our guests, Rachel Kalander, the executive director of Arctic Encounter, Michael Schfraga, the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, and the Iceland ambassador to the United States, Bergdís We'll be back in just a minute.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: Alaska employers, did you know there is a no-cost, no-deductible way to bond at-risk employees, including ex-offenders and individuals recovering from drug addictions, even when your own insurer will not provide bonding? Information about Fidelity Bonding is available at your local Alaska Job Center or toll-free at 877-724-2539. Fidelity Bonding through the Alaska Department of Labor is 100% federally funded. This is an equal opportunity program. This message sponsored by the Department of Labor.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the future of the Arctic and the complications that the Russian war in Ukraine has presented for continuity and research, and especially for the Arctic Council that's comprised of eight Arctic nations. Russia is currently the chair of the Arctic Council, but the other seven nations have uh, declined to attend any meetings or convene because of uh, their strong feelings of protest over Russia's war in Ukraine. In the studio with me is Rachel Kalander. Rachel is the executive director of Arctic Encounter. On the line is Michael Schraga, the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. And also with us today on the line is Iceland's ambassador to the United States, Bergdís Ehlertstadter. You can join our conversation if you'd like. If you have questions about what's happening and what uh, may be happening in the future in the Arctic, 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 8422 You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Rachel, uh, past Arctic encounter gatherings, as you've noted, have taken place in the UK, in France, Iceland, Norway. Have concrete policy or other actions resulted from those meetings? Are there things that you can point to that say, wow, we really had an impact there?
3: Um, Yes. Senator Murkowski actually um, did that work for me (laughs) this year at the 2022 event. um, She gave a keynote address in which she acknowledged some of the statements um, that she made um, or made in collaboration with others on past Arctic encounter stages that have since come to fruition. One of those was making very bold statements about um, priorities for icebreaker funding and um, icebreaker infrastructure for the U.S. Another was supporting a security center in in Anchorage, which you now know you know that has been appropriated by Congress, the Ted Stevens Security Center. Um, I I don't want to misspeak on the others uh, off off the top of my head, but uh, she did she did raise a number of those, and and for the record, that that keynote will be uh, added to our YouTube in the future. So all, all right, people can hear it. Um, Ambassador
0: how talk about the convening that the, the Arctic encounter that was in Iceland. What came from it and um, what are your thoughts about bringing people together in that way?
5: Well, the, um, the yearly conference in, in Iceland, which is the um, Arctic Circle Assembly, which brings together uh, people from us, the Arctic encounter, government, the NGOs, the indigenous the science community, government, and so forth. So, I mean, these have been—I'm not even quite sure how long they have been going on. I mean, Mike, you might remember this, but at least uh, for for ten years or so. And um, and and these have been an a valuable input into policy, and from these. Um, Meetings, um, for example, in the build up of our chairmanship and of our Arctic uh, policy, the Arctic policy of the government, uh, the input from these kind of multifaceted uh, um, conferences, uh, we have um, gained tremendously and it has shaped our agenda very much so. I mean, I can't pinpoint a policy like. Rachel was just doing, but it's an important aspect of the work, because work in the Arctic is not just government, it's not just policy, it's all the other issues that we have been discussing, and and it's so important that everyone who has a stake, uh, be it from the communities, be it from the universities, be it from, from the local governments or I mean, they all need to be at the table. And and these conferences are a very good opportunity uh, for us, for example, from government to meet all these different stakeholders and to listen to them and learn from them. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, we in Iceland had a lot to learn from the indigenous community, which we do not have. And we need to do, that was a new voice in our policymaking. So, but important if you are uh, working on the whole of the Arctic. So so we have definitely uh, gained a lot from these these, uh, assemblies. Uh, And it's also the most important networking opportunities you can have if you want to meet everyone who has anything to say about the Arctic. These are the um, events to go to. Um, They have, I mean, there you would not maybe normally meet a person who is doing local politics in Canada or in in a small fishing village in in Alaska. And for example, I've also met uh, the the US delegations to these conferences in Iceland, so are mostly the biggest ones. Uh, And we have had big groups coming from both Alaska but also from Maine. I mean, Maine may not be the Arctic, but they are of course, looking into ways to cooperate both with Iceland and and Greenland. And and so uh, these are really uh, important and and valuable conferences which bring bring to light so many different voices, which all need to be heard for us who are working in government in order for us to make sensible policies about the region.
0: Going back to Dr. DeRoe uh, at the recent Arctic encounter that was in Anchorage, um, she noted that the 14th General Assembly of the ICC was still being planned for July. Dr. DeRoe said they have not paused discussions and communication with the Inuit in Chakotka.
6: In my assessment, uh, we are able to carry forward the work that's necessary to Uh, maintain that unity of the Inuit voice, including in the context of our General Assembly. With regard to um, the, you know, undercurrents that may be influencing some of the broader debate and dialogue, uh, we have not seen that emerge out of our membership. I'm cognizant of the fact that for other Arctic Indigenous peoples, this has been somewhat problematic, and I think everyone uh, following and and carefully monitoring these developments is aware of of, um, forces and splinters, so to speak. Um, But nevertheless, we've managed to uh, maintain our relations and our contact, and we're really hoping that there's a resolution to this particular conflict that uh, doesn't cost Uh, any more than it already has, and that uh, we can kind of regain some normalcy across the board um, completely.
0: Regaining some normalcy at that same discussion, Ambassador David Balton, the executive director of the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, within the executive office of the U.S. president. Lots of executive titling going on there. Bolton said although he respected Dr. Duro's desire to get back to some sense of normalcy, that does not seem in reach currently.
7: What I would say is that from my past experience, um, the reason people spoke of Arctic exceptionalism was because of the willingness of the governments involved to compartmentalize, to set aside the differences between Russia and the other countries in the Arctic over Syria, over Crimea, over election interference, over computer hacking, uh, in favor of our mutual interests in the Arctic. That's not possible right now.
0: Mike, what are your thoughts here? We've been talking about the difficulty and, you, know, you know, the ICC continuing its work, but is the cumulative effects of Russia's bad behavior or the current brutal attack on Ukraine uh Is it, and can work continue as Dr. Durow suggests in any meaningful way without Russian government involvement?
4: And Laurie, it's, I mean, you put your finger on the complexity of this where so many of us are really want to continue the urgent work of the Arctic, but the political realities, the war, uh, the realities of war um, have pretty much frozen all of that literally, perhaps figuratively. I certainly understand daily and ICC's position here is that to the degree that they can continue their good work, and there are provisions, there are provisions that are made for groups to continue to work like that, but they are not supported by either their governments or, you know, a particular government, you know, that work, that work can continue. And, and, you know, I applaud her for the, trying to continue to do the good work, because really that's what ICC is focused on, as, as many other groups are, including Arctic Council and other Arctic organizations. But i think you know dave is right in his perspective which is at some point you cross a line and i think we're, we have watched that line being crossed each and every evening uh, and it yes it's it's a cumulative effect in terms of 2014 and crimea but even before that an invasion of georgia uh syria and the way in which war was conducted in syria we're seeing the war conducted like that now if i were to turn the color off on your television tonight, and you watch the news of the war in Ukraine, and I told you in a narration that it was 1939 or 1942, you might just believe me. It looks like that. And there, at some point, the international rules-based order must hold. I mean, the 70-plus the years that we built these broad international-based orders and broad international cooperation frameworks, at some point, um, you step over that line of what is normal and right, and what is absolutely abnormal and not right. And I think we are there. And so even though we were able to navigate, as the art as Dave pointed out, this Arctic exceptionalism, you know, there's this make-believe bubble around the North that even though we had our differences, we could still work together. Many agreements since 2014 and even before that, negotiated in different fora have gone forward agreements on international scientific cooperation much needed search and rescue you know the ambassador can tell you all about the, the hard work that there is in iceland and other arctic nations to uh, ensure that a tour ship in trouble can be reached that fishermen can be reached so we have a search and rescue agreement that includes the russian federation and many others um, but at some point uh the world needs to reflect and i think this morning this, today we saw Secretary Austin and 40 plus nations meet in Germany uh, to basically put their foot down and say that that what's happening in, in Ukraine is not right. And the Arctic is not immune to that. And so even though we were able to navigate, navigate Georgia, Syria, Crimea, this goes beyond the pale. And I think that's what Dave is pointing out is that you simply have to draw a line somewhere. And the line has been drawn now, not just with the Arctic Council, but on broad international cooperation with the Russian Federation uh, that unfortunately will impact the North. And I think that's where we get back to two things, if I may. One is the ambassador's note that the seven democratic nations in the Arctic that are part of the Arctic Council have to find a way, and that's what they're working on now, find a way to do the important work of the North for the people of the North, inclusive of all people as Daly has said, in her comments about ICC, find ways to continue that work. And I'm confident that work can continue. It will not be as complete perhaps as we would have liked it, but nevertheless, one nation does not get to hold the others hostage to the good work that has to get done. Second is your note, your question to Rachel about the role that Arctic Encounters has played uh, globally. I would say that, you know, I applaud Rachel and her team for bringing that conference to the Arctic to Alaska. It highlights Alaska's unique geopolitical role, the importance we play for our nation, our nation's security, uh, and all other facets of the North. Second, it brought together the people of the North, a kaleidoscope of all of the issues. And third, and finally, Arctic encounters place within these larger conferences that we all attend, whether it's Arctic Circle Assembly. And Ambassador, I think, President Grimson started the current Arctic Circle Assembly in 2013, just the year before Crimea, if I'm not, not mistaken. Our friends in Arctic frontiers in Tromsø, very large meeting we will all be going to in May, and here you have Arctic encounters. There's this Venn diagram where the Arctic communities come together. And sometimes policy is fleshed out as noted uh, by Rachel that Senator Murkowski went through a long list, icebreakers, ports, the need for an Arctic ambassador, the creation of a Ted Stevenson or we could keep going, the importance of Alaska to the nation and to the world. But there's a Venn diagram of gatherings that serve formal and informal purposes, science, diplomacy, uh, indigenous peoples together, speaking to non-indigenous peoples, learning from them, uh, each other. So, you know, there's a lot happening in the north. The complexities are there, and the reality that you heard from daily and from and from Dave Bolton that you have to work through these broader international issues, but you yet still try to search for ways to work for the good of the north. Because someday this will turn. When we when will it turn? We do not know, but at some point, be prepared so that we can get back to the work that was done prior to to the invasion.
0: Right. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the future of the Arctic as Talk of Alaska continues statewide.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAAlaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong. Ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quitline.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. Let's go to the phones quickly. We're quickly approaching the end of this hour. It's been an an amazing conversation. Carl is in Homer. Hello, Carl.
7: Hello. uh, This is a very educational program. Thank you. I'm learning a bunch of $20 words here. Arctic encounters. I love that phrase. And um, what I would love to help interject into this conversation. We have Norway and Iceland on one side of the Northwest Passage and Alaska on the other side. We don't know what Russia's doing. We know that they're developing massive oil and gas infrastructure. But if we work with the collective whole of the Arctic partnerships, uh, polar partnership countries, and develop a center here in Alaska for the polar partnership countries to coalesce and share data and develop small, efficient more indigenous vessels that would connect our native uh, indigenous people up there with science and technology at a small scale and demonstrate living light in the Arctic. Uh, I think that would be wonderful. Here with the end of the road system in Homer and what a fantastic place to develop an international polar partnership center where we also build polar partnership vessels for joint projects in the Northwest Passage regardless of the troubles and tribulations that are going on in the Northeast Passage with Russia.
0: All right. So, so. you're advocating for uh, a, a center built here in, in state. You'd like to see it in Homer. We do have a new center that's going to be opening up in May at UAA, the Ted Stevens Center. So we'll learn more about that in May once they get open. Thanks
3: for the call, Carl. Any thoughts, Rachel? Uh, well, I, it made me think about um, something that um, Admiral Moore shared um, with the Coast Guard on stage at Arctic Encounter. He, he mentioned, as you mentioned, Lori, that there are certain avenues in which uh, collaboration with Russia is still open. And he said that the Coast Guard has basically been given the green light um, from Homeland Security and the Pentagon to continue life-saving um, or resource-protecting uh, missions in regards to fisheries or, or rescues. Um, we obviously are not far apart in the Bering Strait. So that, that, of course, needs to stay in place. I think maybe Carl meant the Northern Sea Route, which runs across the top of Russia. The Northwest Passage runs over the top of Canada. Um, I defer to, to Mike on other comments on this. But um, yeah, I think that uh, much is to be seen um, with the Ted Stevens Center. Uh, uh, Randy Churchkey, um, a longtime defense leader in Alaska is in charge of that project, and I know that we're all behind him, and and we expect great things. Um, Too much of what Carl raised. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of those issues. We've,
0: you know, noted that the U.S. is woefully behind in building icebreakers. We lack port infrastructure in the Arctic. Do you think, and Mike, I want to turn to you for a moment here will there be a large and faster response to funding military infrastructure and capacity in the northern part of the state? It seems like time for careful planning for Arctic infrastructure development is really important. And if the U.S. government decides there needs to be a much faster ramp up of military presence in the north, what are the risks in in trying to do that fast?
4: Yeah, well, great, great question. So I, I do think that the Department of Defense you know, has their sights on bolstering their infrastructure, whether that's the hard infrastructure like, like ports and runways. Of course, in my hometown of Fairbanks, Alaska, where we have the highest concentration of F-35s any place on the planet, there's a reason for that. I think we'll see more DOD spending and homeland security spending uh, in the state of Alaska that could be multi-purpose. You know, you put a port out in Nome, you can. You can put coast guard cutters out there you can put fishing monitoring vessels out there Uh, you can do a lot and so the 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 department of defense understands and is understanding better the landscape that they have to uh, defend but they also know they have to invest in infrastructure that doesn't last just five years. To your point, Laurie, it does. It, it can't last five years. The dynamics of permafrost dictate that when you build a runway in the state of Alaska for the nation's defense, that you have to do it in a way that is engineering. It's the engineering is done soundly and takes into consideration the environmental factors that that come about with climate change. So you know the codes that we built built the pipeline on don't don't work, wouldn't work. Uh, they're altered all the time, but our roads—any any Alaskan will tell you—our roads uh, need work every year. And so the planning it is in place; it is happening. But they're building for decades out at the same time, trying to figure out what the threats are from from you know from Russia or other other countries. But the state of Alaska is a a tip of the spear for for the nation's defense. And so there's lots of planning going on, trying to engineer for the future, trying to meet the demand of covering a new ocean that's opening. And, and a nation that we share a maritime border with that has acted out in a way around the globe that is not based on international rules-based orders. So that's that's a big part of it. Um, and I would say that any infrastructure built in our state, we need to look at, you know, my, my phrase has been building Arctic Legos, if you're going to build something somewhere, what else can you build there and what you, you have to be the cost is just too high, even for the Department of Defense, and always thinking about what the community wants, is this something the community wants, can the community benefit from it. So if you have a port, what kind of fiber, what kind of road, what kind of infrastructure, how do you support all those uh, equities. And to carl's point laurie if i may just one point there i think the idea of of, i think he was you know as a geographer i think he was thinking differently which is which is great this sort of north american arctic the arctic the arc of cooperation between alaska canada greenland iceland thinking that way not just because of common democracies but also we have a lot of commonality in blue ocean economies that we can develop an infrastructure that we need so instead of thinking of infrastructure going south north perhaps we should think about people's Economies, equities, investments going east west among like minded nations. An interesting concept.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thanks uh, for that context, Mike. Ambassador Ellerstadter, I want to give you the final word here in our last couple of minutes. Um, your thoughts about the potential for military forces in the Arctic and the risks that that may present.
5: But up until now, the mantra has always been the Arctic must remain peaceful and it should should stay an area of low political tensions. Ukraine has somehow uh, put that mantra um, on its head. I mean, we now see, even if we do not see any more activity now than we have uh, in, in recent months or years, but we definitely need to focus more on security in the high north Uh, And we are just, we have, this is something that Iceland has been pushing for years, and we are just very happy that now the U.S. is firmly on board. Uh, Any conversations we would have had with our U.S. partners 10 years ago would certainly not have had Arctic at the top of the agenda. Now all we talk about is the Arctic, and it connects to all other issues uh, that we share and, and, and speak with our U.S. allies on.
0: For all of you here in our final minutes, what are you hoping to see within the next six months when it comes to uh, what's happening with Arctic policy and concerns around safety and security in that region, Rachel?
3: Um, that's a big question. I think I'll just <laughs> dial into... Um something I've been meditating on and perhaps that's because I have a two-year-old and a seven month old uh, I've been thinking about the the people who are fighting and inspiring the world right now in Ukraine and the fact that so much progress we had all hoped for for the coming decade in the Arctic spaces may be stalled um, if not paused in in some in some ways and I I just wanted to share a quote that was given at the dinner at Arctic encounter um, we're talking about female leadership with an all-female panel between between, uh, Senator Murkowski and the moderator, who is also a woman from the Washington Post, Libby Casey, and several female ambassadors. Senator Murkowski was reflecting on female leadership and that a conversation she had recently about the war in Ukraine. She asked someone uh, in leadership, when will this end? And the response was, it will be when the mothers in Russia stand up and say enough. I think that... You know, that just is striking uh, to think about, especially in the context of female leadership, but also, you know, within this broader conversation that we're having about what leadership means. It really does, in my experience, come down to the people and individual um, mothers and community leaders and, and important voices at the local level. So in order to see real change there, it's going to have to be the
0: people themselves that come forward and say, we, we need to change this.
3: Basically how all major movements and revolutions have occurred. Well, we will have
0: to leave it there. Thank you so much to my guest today, Rachel Kalander, the executive director of Arctic Encounter, Michael Schfraga, the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission and the founding director of the Polar Institute. And also the ambassador of Iceland to the United States, Ellert's daughter, was also with us today. Thanks so much to all of you for your expertise and your thoughts. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones today, Kavitha George, helped us out. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.